0: Just
1: between us, hey. Just between us, hey. Hello, I'm Allison Raskin. I'm a writer, mental health advocate, and I want to get more ear
2: piercings, but I'm afraid. Hey, I'm Gabe Dunn. I'm a writer, icon, bisexual icon, wink, and I am covered in pimple stickers right now. Oh, really? Yeah, they're invisible though. But you might be able to see them.
1: Oh, I can't tell at all because we're we're
2: recording virtually because Melissa is not feeling well. Yeah, I um, testosterone is kicking my ass. Oh, really? My skin is breaking out. I went and got a facial with the esthetician who's amazing. Who's like a, a queer esthetician who does a lot of trans people. And she's great. And it made a huge difference. But in the meantime, I'm like getting it's like on my neck. I don't know. It's just it's just going to keep happening, I think. Apparently, it can take a couple of years. But if anyone has any suggestions, please let me know.
1: Have you gone up on testosterone or it's just
2: like long term side effect? I went off. I went up. I went up on it. Oh, you went up. Mm. Yeah. But also, I think it, it, it just is, I think, from long term use or whatever. I mean, I think I'm complaining about I mean, I've never had non acne prone skin. I've always mm-hmm. had acne prone skin. Um, so I'm constantly on a journey with it. But I've had to do this thing. I remember like in um college where I just had to do this thing where I was like, look, you're going to have acne. You can either choose to like not live your life, not go out, not see people, not whatever because of the acne. But never in my life have I been like, "Ugh, I hate that my friend is here when they have a pimple. No, I've always just been enjoying their company. So like even if people are like, oh, that's gross or they have an opinion on it or they don't they think I look unattractive or whatever it's not like anyone has ever been like, I'm so glad that Gabe isn't here because of their gross acne. So you know what? Like, (laughs) I've never thought that about someone. So I'm like, okay, well, you just have to sort of be like, yeah, it'd be like that, you know? I don't know. Yeah. No, I think that's a great, that's a great take. (laughs) (laughs) I get self-conscious, but it's like, and I wish I didn't have it, but I also, this is kind of a weird thing, but like sometimes I'll like look at, quote unquote flaws on other people. And Mm -hmm. I'll be like, I feel better. I'm like, right. Everybody has something.
1: Yeah. I mean, being exposed to like more body diversity, like all Mm -hmm. that stuff is like so helpful because it's like, oh, nobody actually looks the way that we're told we're supposed to
2: look. No. And I saw Madison Beer do an interview where she's wearing acne stickers on her face during the interview. And I was like, yeah, why not? Or like Millie Bobby Brown just posted with like some acne. I always feel like, I'm like, I want to do that. I want to just like post my acne and be like, this is life. But I get like so embarrassed. I'm like, but what if people see it and they judge me? Really? Yeah, I get nervous. Like I I want to, I want to be like, these are the realities of testosterone. Here's what's really going on with me or whatever. Um, But I just, I think like, it's so funny. I get over hurdles of like sexual shame, money shame, blah, blah, blah. And like, I think, I think acne shame is going to be one of my new levels. It's your final frontier. My final frontier. No, everything is embarrassing. I'm trans. Every single thing that's happening to my body is embarrassing. But the (laughs) acne, maybe I can overcome it.
1: I think you can. Yeah. Anyway, this is just between us. A variety show filled with
2: heartfelt advice. Ridiculous games. And brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. I look through like skincare Uh Reddit and it's like, it's like, okay, what's your skincare routine? And there's like 15 steps. Everyone has a mil- a million steps to their skincare routine. I'm like, uh I wash with Cetaphil. I use now I use like a cleanser and like a whatever, sunscreen, and then I use these little acne stickers, but that's all I got.
1: I don't understand it when I put my eye cream on, am I allowed to put my face cream on over my eye cream?
2: Girl, you are asking the wrong dude. <laughs> Melissa yes. says yes. <laughs> okay, great. I wear no makeup, like, you know, like I thought not wearing makeup anymore because I used to wear, I used to love crazy eyeshadows. I used to like do lipsticks, you know, crazy blushes, which I sort of miss doing because it was fun. Maybe I'll do it once I quote unquote pass. But like now I thought, okay, I'm not going to do any of that. My skin's going to be absolutely clear because I'm not using any of that stuff. No, Mm. but I guess it's testosterone.
1: Probably. You know what it is? It's
2: because my hairs are growing in on my face. So, like, when I shave my face, I'm shaving hairs off my face, but like the follicles, I think, are getting clogged by like the new hairs coming in.
1: I think if I ever had to shave my face, I couldn't. Like, I would be covered in cuts.
2: I use an electric razor. So it's like not that bad. But I'm going to leave scruff. Once I have it, I'm just shaving it because it's like, it's got little, like, you know, it's little tufts. Once it's like coming in more consistently then I'll shave, I'll, you know, I'll have, I won't shave it so close. Like I'll have mm. like some scruff, I think. That's my goal. That's my dream. That's exciting. Thanks. Up next, we've got an exciting interview with our highly esteemed guests, Sarah Reinhardt and Louise Brown. Stay tuned.
1: Each month the editorial team reads through hundreds of new titles, they pick some of the best new books for you to choose from, all the books are good so you can't go wrong. Every aspect of the Book of the Month experience is designed to be fun and special for readers. They have a highly anticipated release at the beginning of each month, books are delivered in this really adorable bright blue box, and there's a fun app to help you pick your book and track your reading process. They also offer great values on new release hardcover fiction. It's much cheaper than other options. Shipping is always free. And with a loyalty program, you get rewards and even lower prices the longer you stay as a member. My first book from Book of the Month was The Husbands by Holly Gramazio. I am tearing through this book. It is so fun. It's basically about this woman who one day comes home and there's a husband in her apartment. And she's like, where did you come from? And then she figures out that every time her new husband goes into the attic a new husband comes out and she's, she's like shuffling through all these different husbands from the attic trying to figure out which one is the best it is right up my alley and I love it so much so if you want to take part in book of the month and have a brand new book shipped right to your door every single month Go to bookofthemonth.com and get your first book for $5 with code PEDALS. That's $5 off with code PEDALS. I cannot recommend this enough. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you all about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories, Welcome back to Just Between Us. It's time for the juiciest, most scandalous, most controversial segment known to all of podcasting.
2: Tough questions. This week on the show, we have Sarah Reinhardt and Louise Brown. Sarah and Louise are both adoptees from the Baby Scoop era and have shared their stories of learning about their adoption stories, searching for their biological families, and how these things impacted their lives. Thank you for being here. Thank Thank you you. for having us. First of all, what is the Baby Scoop era? The Baby Scoop era
3: was a really, like, puritanical era in which women were shamed into giving up their babies between like 1946 and 1973, 1972, really, I guess, right before Roe kind of put an end to that.
4: Mm -hmm. Didn't put an end to adoption, but just the end of the baby scoop era.
3: Right. So women were basically shamed, you know, if they it was a really odd era between 1946 really through the 60s and the 70s and the early late 60s and early 70s it started to shift a little bit with but women having sex would be mm-hmm. a young woman having sex would be shamed into giving up her baby and making babies adoptable for couples who wanted to adopt it was a, it was really this propaganda era of coercing women into giving yep. up their babies
4: and and our podcast focuses, as Sarah said, it's all about adoption, but we focus on the adoptee.
3: Yes. So that, just to
4: clarify that for listeners.
3: Yeah, because the narrative out there has always been, you're lucky, you're so fortunate. and That's not the case, really. Often, very often, women didn't want to give up their babies. They wanted to keep them. But the pressure, the societal pressure, the pressure maybe from their parents, from their peers, all that mm-hmm. stuff. So... I was one of those babies whose mother did not want to give her up.
1: So, I mean, I feel like the conversation around adoption has been shifting a lot in the last few years. Um, We did have one other uh, episode about adoption a few years ago. And I feel like growing up, like you said, like it was very much this idea that like, oh, it's a a mitzvah, it's a wonderful thing to do. Mm -hmm. Did you always negative about being
4: adopted or was that something that changed as you grew up? Well, when Sarah and I started the podcast, there's something called in the fog, like adoptees call it in the fog, where you're just going along like, okay, I'm adopted and I deal with all these weird things on the back end, but I don't address my issues. So when we were starting our podcast, we're like, we always talk about being adopted. We had a business together. Let's talk about adoption and our have everybody in the adoption world on the podcast. And we quickly came to realize, okay. First of all, we know mostly about adoptees. Let's narrow this down to it, being an adoptee. But also there was a lot of things. I had, a Sarah and I had different experiences. I had a very good adoption and loved my parents and she loved her parents too. But like a nice, where people go, well, that's a win-win, right? But I still suffered with a lot of anxieties and traumas that I started finding out came from this, came from being adopted that I could never explain, that I bonded with other adoptees over barely scratching the surface.
3: Right. Well, when you're growing up, your parents weren't told anything. There wasn't, mm. certainly in our era, there wasn't any kind of therapy to have sort of a pre-therapy uh, talk about what is happening. There certainly wasn't any therapy for infertility that they may have been going, that right. many parents that chose adoption went through. That So, you know, you have these, Parents coming in with grief. And then you have a child who's been relinquished, and that's trauma, Mm -hmm. but nobody talks about it. So you're all, all we were told, oh, you were adopted. It was a wonderful thing. Your mother loved you so much, she gave you away. So you've got that weird messaging, right? And then you don't really, you're a kid. So none of this really surfaces. You just kind of know, like in my case, I just kind of, and I had um, secondary trauma, like my adoptive parents got divorced. And then my mother left and we were left with my dad. So I conflated a lot of stuff too throughout mm-hmm. my life. But like, you know, at 20, I go to therapy and they focused on the divorce, never focused on the adoption. There was nobody to ever talk to about it. You just didn't, you just kind of had these feelings and didn't know what they were. Like, why is it hard for me to get close to somebody? Yes. Why do I push people
2: away? Why?
4: Almost all adoptees have that, by the way. We're why eternity. don't I belong? Yes. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm with belonging. I mean, in your era, did people talk about, oh, my kid is adopted or you are adopted or was it, yeah. I imagine it was very hush hush. No, it was, it was it more was like, up
4: yeah, it was like, oh, she's adopted or you're adopted. I used to wear it as like kind of a badge of like, oh, that's an interesting thing about me. Mm. And then that was all that was discussed. Like if I brought it up in my family, you know, my brother was not adopted. He was five years older. So if I said something to my family, you know, as a young kid, I wonder who my mother is or I'm listening about them because you have no mirroring going on, mm-hmm. you know, from start from that's a big thing. And, you know, now that we know more about child psychology and how you raise children, mirroring and taking a baby from, you know, their original mother right away and putting them with other people and you're never allowed to talk about it. That's a big trauma, right? Mm-hmm. They, call, they call it the primal wound, actually. And so. It, you know, when you start to ask questions like, "Oh, what about me?" you get like, "Oh, you're you ours, of course, and we love you," and that hurts other people's feelings to say things like that. Okay, yeah, you get, my baby, you get the pretty the message pretty quick that you're hurting somebody by asking these questions. So you don't, you stuff mm-hmm. it down. You wonder why you don't really feel like you fit in. We'll get into this, but most adoptees, I'd say a majority of adoptees, I'm not speaking for all adoptees, have. Very big abandonment issues, trust relationship issues. Adoptees are four times more likely to commit suicide. I mean, Sarah can speak to some of this too. So it's a very lonely experience, even though you're putting on, like, they're great chameleons. You're putting on a great, I'm you know, I'm good. I'm with my family. But you're always wondering,
3: watching. And then are like weird things, like with family trees or something. And you're like, well, it's not my family, you know. Yeah. It's it's, It's just... People want to know who they are.
4: Think about ancestry and and DNA sites. And people go on and they talk about I'm Irish or I'm German, you know, your whole life you're hearing this, but you're not. And mm-hmm. and so, but if you if adoptees ask the question, it's like you're you're kind of being bad in society, like I'm grateful. Ungrateful. Why are you asking that? You know, it's a very strange thing to go from how we used to be to talking about it now. I've gotten the things like, well, don't you love your family? You love your, more than life. Mm-hmm. I can do both. I can love my family and have issues about who I am as a person, where I come from, who are my people. I can do both, right? But something about adoption is a very strange, Nobody, especially in our area, it is changing and there are different things going on. But
3: I mean, sure, there are open adoptions or there's other things, but it still doesn't take, you know, you're still taking... A child from its mu- Think about it. So you're born and then suddenly you're just randomly placed into, genet- into a st- family of genetic strangers and then expected to adapt. So something Sarah just said there, it's, um, I mean,
4: I, I forget the man's name, so I should look it up for your show notes or something. But there's a therapist who said, you know, adoption is the only trauma where the victim is expected to be grateful. Okay. Mm. adopt, And so that if you think mm. about it like that, that kind of was a big aha moment for me. Where I was like, "Oh, you know, if a mother dies in childbirth or something, everyone talks about oh, your mother and she was this and she was that, and everyone goes around and makes sure you know about your you know when you're adopted, you don't get to know about your mother, you don't get to ask the questions it's a it's a hush hush, it's not okay to upset your family, and I think that's where we're trying to really get the message out as adoptees have voices because they're not the ones you hear about in society right well,
3: it's one of the things you know it's one of the universally agreed upon that adoption is a wonderful thing. But th- but I know where I was going before. Mm-hmm. You take this child and then you just erase its identity. You give it a new name. I mean, Allison mm-hmm. was saying before we started, like she, I said, oh, I like Sugar, her dog's name. And she said, yeah, it's the name. I can't take credit for it. It's the name they came with. And that's not the case for babies. You know, you're just taken. And then right. I had an original name on the first, you know, that, that is not my name. Actually, I do prefer my name. I'll be honest. <laughs> but, <laughs> it was Donna.
2: That's not really me, but. Um, <laughs> you can change your name at any time. Speaking as a trans True. person, they don't, they don't really <laughs> care that you could do. Just go down to the courthouse, change <laughs> <Yeah>. it, whatever.
4: <laughs> well, the, the, this is the interesting thing. You bring that up. So I was with a lot of adoptees this week in a group that in my area and you can't just easily do that as an adoptee because you have to have your original paperwork and you don't. And then you have to get permission from parents who may not want to give it to you on both sides in several states. Mm -hmm. And so it's a very, it's a strange thing. Like I never knew, my parents were told, the social workers controlled a lot of the back and forth back in that era. So like my parents, when they brought me home, didn't think I ever really spent time with my biological mom. They were told certain nice things about her and my biological father, and I come to find out I was with her for three days. She wasn't sure she wanted to give me. I had pictures with her. I had a full name. You know, big feelings there, right? And then you're—it's like a—it's a funny thing to find out about yourself later in life and see things where you're like, "Whoa!" You know, it's kind of mind blowing. I don't know how to explain it. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you talk a little bit about like searching for your biological families and when that began and how it went?
3: Yeah. I'll, I was pre- I got pre- I was having a baby and I was realized, well, I don't know anything about my health history. I should find out. I should so I went to my adoption agency and I had to get the permission. Here I was, a 31-year-old, having to get permission from my adoptive parents that it was okay to search for my birth parents. And so it took a while because they couldn't find, in my state, they both, uh, d- both birth parents had to agree to be found or you couldn't, I couldn't talk to either one of them. So say that my father didn't want to meet me and my mother did, forget it. Which is what happened to my brother, who was adopted. So they never could find my father, and my mother had always kept her name with a sound deck database, you know that will put put them put babies and mothers back together. So I met her. It took six months because of the whole they never could find my father. So it turned out he was no longer alive because I've since been in reunion with his sisters and my cousins. So then yeah then I I found her they she was overjoyed um I had siblings they came to see me so I had a new baby he's like 6 months old 7 months old and I lived in a loft in Venice <laughs> and she arrives on the train with my two sisters <laughs> to stay with me for like 3 weeks and it was I wrote a whole script about it cuz I mean it's just kind of comedic but and it, that was how I I met them and then there was because of what Louise was talking about earlier, you know, and we have this loyalty of, well, Mm -hmm. there isn't a guilt, guilt. If I have feelings for this, for my mother, my birth mother, I can't, because it'll hurt my parents' feelings. And so it's really complicated. So I just kept her at arm's length for a a long time. I'd sort of let her in, and then I'd push her away, Mm -hmm. and let her in and push her away. She died in 2009. So now... On the other side of it, I think about it a lot. Like, I wish I had Mm -hmm. fled her. I wish I'd gotten closer to her. But I stayed in reunion, talked to her all the time, have my sisters on my father's side. I recently found out that he had committed suicide. He'd been a Vietnam vet and had a lot of trauma. But I have siblings through him who I've not met in person, but have had contact with. The other interesting piece to my story is that my birth mother was also adopted. So she had that trauma to her, you know, and and so she died and I didn't have the information about her, her mother. So that's, I finally got to the bottom of that and found out with the help of a search angel who her father was, my grandfather. So finally I, those pieces all, all came together. A reunion can be tricky. It's not, you know, Hollywood will portray it as, as, the end of the story, but really it's the beginning of another story. I was
4: just going to say that was like when Sarah was talking about at reunion, most of our guests that come on, when they get into reunion, that's when the real complications begin emotionally. And but that's right, where right. society sees it as, oh, did you see that Oprah where everybody met and everybody's happy? and And that's really short lived often. It's very stressful. It's very stressful for the adoptee because they have to balance new worlds of people. And feelings about people like Sarah's mom was adopted. Mom was very supportive of her finding her birth family. M- many adoptees don't have that. They don't have that support. Mm-hmm. They're not made to feel like. Well, you you didn't. I didn't have that. I didn't look actually. I wanted to look just like Sarah. We met actually through our sons. So they're around the same age. And um, I also had him and was like, oh, my God, I have a relative alive on this earth. Right. Like, this is my guy. Wait, I know nothing about myself. You know, that, that's kind of a big thing for adoptees. So I wanted to do the same as Sarah. And I just didn't. I was just working and in chaos and thinking about it. And then my biological family found me. Oh, So when my son was two, I was 32. I get a phone call. You know, you've been found, literally. That's what they said. That's the whole story I wrote about it. Cause I'm like, that's not how you start a phone call. Thank God I didn't <laughs> thank God I knew yeah. I was adopted, by the way. It wasn't from them, it was from a mediator. So and they my biological mom's family found me because she had died when she was twenty-seven, when I was in the second grade. And I was her only child. She was the youngest of four sisters and my biological grandmother was dying of Parkinson's and it had been her wish to meet me. And they'd spent 10 years looking for me, which at the time I remember, this is kind of funny. You look back on things. I remember thinking, that's so neat. They thought, Like I was kind of cold to it. Like Sarah said, like I, I have this loyalty to my family who are these people really curious, like I can't wait, but I'm also really freaking out. And, and I remember thinking, oh, you ten know, 10 years. Now I think, wow, they spent that, like I was wanted. I was, someone wanted to find me. Now I, I know them very well now. And I, I feel so differently about how much grace they've given me over the years because I did what Sarah did. I met them, loved them all, then pulled back tremendously from them just out of how to balance it. You know, my parents didn't feel great about it. Then my mm-hmm. parents did start to come around about it and want to know things. And so I got married to my new husband about, uh 5 years ago and everybody that could come was at that wedding together it was really special my my father had died but my mom was there and my aunt my biological aunt came and cousins and met my other cousins so all that was really healing but it's still an ongoing thing it's still you know i i wish i knew my biological mom i know a lot about her i have letters and what she thought about me and it's all very personal my biological father I know who he is. We've had some communication. He really has ghosted me at this point a little bit. He doesn't know how he doesn't know how to combine those worlds. So, and I have two half siblings through him, sisters. I know who they are. They don't know who I am. Like tons of cousins, but I haven't really crossed the sibling road. I'm giving him maybe a little bit longer. I have a plan, sort of, but that's ongoing. <laughs> that's where I'm with that. Mm-hmm. Wow.
0: We're gonna take a quick break, but stick around.
2: and we're back. Do you feel
1: differently about closed adoptions versus open adoptions or do you think that the the trauma is there regardless?
3: Personally, I think the trauma is there regardless. I mean, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence or I mean, not even anecdotal, people talk about ha- having those feelings and that trauma. I mean, maybe I think in some cases open adoption is I mean, I'm sure it's better. I I still think it's difficult. It has a different set of
4: Issues. I have friend. I have a friend who has uh, open adoption, and I went out to eat with her and her daughter, and I'm amazed how openly they do just talk about things. That part is really nice. That would have been really nice to have that as a young person coming up. But then there's still. Mm. I can still see the same issues actually too. So right. And
3: know. then yeah, the whole set of issues, and I can't speak to it except just we had a younger. Adoption who was in an open adoption. She was in a lot of pain. You could just see it on her face when we talked to her and you know, always on the verge of tears. She was young, you know, I don't know, 28, maybe <laughs> older than you, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> no. <That's> not... <laughs> no. But thank you.
4: <laughs> we're like young like you. <laughs> yeah, we're mid 30s, baby.
3: <laughs> but, but she, um, she had an open adoption and, and her birth mother was in and out of her life and it was yeah, really painful. painful, you know, and I think so it's a different set of feeling rejected maybe or, or abandoned because she'd get close and then she'd be gone and then she'd come back and then she'd be gone. And so
4: I think it's it's education. There was a woman I know that Sarah and I both know from our podcast that spoke up here in my area to a group for National Adoption Month, which is kind of this month. And um, National Adoption Month was really, I just learned this actually started for foster care. And then it's really gone into this whole National Celebrate Adoption Month month thing. So she went to the courthouse and spoke in front of like a hundred families that were celebrating adoption as an adoptee. And I listened to her speak and I was really impressed with her because she said, I'm not against adoption. I'm just against the fact that no one's talking to the adoptee about adoption, right? The the way she said it, like there's, there's literature for this and there's.
3: There's a lot of information out yeah. there of the trauma and they had all that information mm-hmm. back in, you know, back in the 20s. There was a, there's a woman who pretty much single-handedly is, is responsible for all the privacy laws because prior to like the 1920s, first of all, there wasn't really much adoption and there was a lot of other bad stuff like the orphan trains and mm-hmm. baby farms and you know street urchin kids and there was all that stuff before labor laws but before like the 1920s there wasn't really if the mother died or if the mother couldn't take care of the baby the family took care you know it was it was in the family and this woman came along she's well known as very shocking but she just boldly she started off in Memphis and started got politicians involved and and started basically stealing babies and and got the the laws changed in her favor to
4: change so that, birth certificates. to change
3: birth certificates and hot, you know I mean stealing children I and mean, making the mother feel
4: shamed like she really started the whole narrative of what adoption is became mm-hmm. the, big, the big money business the minute you know start trading money for private adoptions
3: and. Which is still the, it's still the case. Mm -hmm. I think a going rate for a baby is like $70,000 or something.
4: And she was, that whole era, they held also the the people, you know, wanted families. Okay, there's families out there want children and want to bring up children into their home. She'd also hold them hostage. It was a double-edged sword. She was stealing babies, ruining people's lives and holding those people hostage for more money or we need this and that. Like a lot of things went on that created modern adoption, which is very strange to think about. It came from that. We've done a lot of research in that. It's just strange.
2: The other adoptee that we had on, Angela Tucker. um, Oh yeah. She um, was talking about, you know, the, the, cause it's like, well, if not adoption, then what? And it's like, well, the ideal situation would be to provide resources in order for families to stay together, like to provide health care to provide, you know, I'm just, I'm not, I'm speaking for myself, not for her, but like UBI or something yeah. where you would have like a, a reunification process or an ideal to like create conditions where instead of being adopted out, th- this could be, you know, better put, like put together better as a society. Um, is that the answer to when people say like, well, if not adoption, then what?
3: It's one of the answers. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I, I think so. Well, First of all, maybe abolish plenary adoption, where which is when you just erase the whole identity and history. And like, let's say there is an 18 year old who, who has a baby and she's struggling and maybe she needs a minute to get it together. Don't just terminate her parental rights and change that baby's name because in five years she might be okay. Or, you know, mm-hmm. in two years or, you know, there is a lot of substance abuse that, that, Causes, But people do get sober and then they, you know, then their their child has just been permanently removed from their life. Guardianship is maybe a way to go for resources. Yes. Resources for the first families start with trying to put the, the children with family members, you know, as a first choice. UBI is a great idea. I mean, I right. like.
4: and uh, sometimes it's it's going adoption is going to remain. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are kids who definitely need homes. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what they were talking about at the board meeting the other night. You know, kids do need homes. There's kids in terrible situations and kids in foster care for a long time that need homes. But it's about knowing who your people are, where you're from. Am I allowed to contact those relatives? Can I know, my, you know, if my birth mother does get it together, wants to see me, can I start seeing her, you know, Mm -hmm. open? I think it's all about education of the child. You know, the best interest of the child isn't always the best interest of the child. I guess we keep things from children. And and
3: also that maybe, yes, because there are children that need help in, in foster care, the older children, Mm you know, there aren't that many babies, not
2: that many. It's really, that's what it is. It's the baby
4: business. It's It's a a very expensive business.
2: Right. And I think also like the sort of, I want this specific baby or I want, a baby that looks like this, or I want, you know, when you're right, there are older kids in foster care. I don't know. It's, it is interesting the obsession with uh, getting something that is a baby so that you can mold it and have complete Mm -hmm. control and also with your own genetics, because that's important to you for some reason, which I guess I can't, I can't judge, but I do see a lot of, of that being really prioritized. And then, you know, I wonder if there is something more to providing, like you said, the voices of the adoptees, providing resources or more resources Mm -hmm. rather than just getting a baby and then, you know. Right. Thinking that they're blank slates is what. Yeah.
3: And Mm -hmm. knowing
4: they're going to have a lot of issues that come up that if you if you did go to therapy and figured it out, you'd know it, you know, or take them to therapy at that time and make sure they see an adoptee that's a therapist or a, there are therapists who specialize in that for those kids. And, and there are parents doing that. So we're not here to shame those people doing that and trying, but I think it's about education, right? About, you can't, you just, it's not bringing home somebody, you know, we sometimes treat the animals that we bring home from the pound more, a little bit more openly than this. Yeah. Well, there's
3: more regulations for, for, I mean, it, certainly in our era, there wasn't many I think I think the social worker, you know, went and visited my parents for like a minute one day, and then suddenly, you know, I'm I'm you know I wanted to paint a scene that made me think when you were talking, Gabe, that I I was thinking of this TV show that I used to watch called Parenthood. I don't know if anybody ever Mm -hmm. watched that, but there was a girl in the office of. Julia Stu, was that her name? Julia Stott, the actor. No, Erica Christensen. The- yeah. Yeah. And they wanted to have another child. And there was a pregnant, young, pregnant girl walking around the office. And she just befriended her and started paying for her bills and, you know, just to, to get that baby. At the time, this was way before I came out of the fog. I was <laughs> like, oh, maybe that is better for the baby. But when you think about it, like all that money she spent could have really gone to help that. That that was that girl's baby. You know what I mean, right? This happens a lot. You see, you see
4: movies a lot differently now. You do like wait, like Juno.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) I think there's also like an element of of racism as well, right? Where it's like you got to take this baby. You're very, which Angela spoke about. You're very lucky to be adopted into a white family, right? Who took you from an orphanage in China. Like you're very lucky to be adopted into this. You know, supposedly Mm -hmm. middle class or upper class. A white family like this was you're you're lucky right you're lucky that's yeah
4: we just had Moses Farrow on our podcast and he's really an adoptee yep he came out last week on our podcast and wow that's a good listen for education for people because yeah you're you're so lucky but are you so I mean
3: well and he had he had three siblings that committed suicide three adopted siblings that committed suicide
2: this is Mia Farrow and and Woody Mm -hmm. Allen's kids Yes, yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. and it, so three of those adopted children committed suicide.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: He's a big advocate for um, adoptees and trauma. He's a trauma therapist, so he talks yeah. a lot about all that. But, um, but Angela's right. There's, there's a lot of well, and also if someone is, we've interviewed many different adoptees. So if you're going to, if you're going to have a child that's not the same race as you, then you really. Need to also do the work to make sure they have friends that they see and families. Move
3: into a neighborhood and go to the school, you know, put them in a, in a school with people of color. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or even classism now that I'm thinking about it, right. The idea on that show that this 18 year old who's like working in the office, it would be better if her baby was with rich people. Right.
4: That's how it started adoption was poor people shouldn't keep their kids. That's kind of how it started. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you're better off with the wealthier family. That's in the old days. That's exactly how they did it. Yeah, they didn't even care how the who those people were. It was just they had money. They didn't have money. Yeah, yeah. money makes Which a doesn't different. make a parent. You know, I right. had dinner
3: last night with somebody who who's adopted, and he has never really read anything. He's never, you know, he started to read The Primal Wound. He said he got a chapter in, and he just it was too painful. But he said, you know, I always considered myself lucky and i'm like well how do you know like how do you know that you were better off you don't know he didn't he's never done dna right. he's never searched like how do you know you were better off yeah. you, you know it's just the narrative
1: if you want to hear the rest of this episode and let me tell you you do head over to patreon.com just between us and for three dollars a month you can get access to all of our podcast episodes in full ad free
2: you can also get merch for this podcast at justbetweenuspod dot com or allisonraskinexposed Okay,
1: that's it. Tatala Two Tatala Two